Well, good morning, Christ community. My name is uh, my name is Jordan Green. I'm part of the pastoral team here. Our resident pastor. Um, I'm so grateful for you guys and really thankful to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, we will be in Matthew 27, exploring the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, but before we get to this heavy text, I want to start talking about my daughter. <laughs> Got to start somewhere. As many of you know, I have a daughter who's just shy of two years age. Uh, she's cute, she's adorable, funny, all that fun stuff. Uh, but the best thing about this age is that she is starting to say actual words and sentences. She's starting to talk. It's almost like she's a real person. Um, I really do love it. And as her language grows, I'm noticing how she sees an image and she relates it to something. Like when she sees a bunny and she calls it Clover, one of her favorite characters in uh, Sophia the First. Of course, then she wants to watch TV, and then she wants a snack, and it's a real if-you-give-your-mouse-a-cookie sort of ordeal. <laughs> but great marketing work. <laughs> and in an icon and marketing-driven age, we shouldn't be surprised by this. There is a simplicity in an image's ability to encapsulate meaning and be memorable. Every company, brand name, mobile app has their own graphic, logo, or icon. In fact, I thought it'd be fun this morning if we uh, try this out together. So I'm going to show you guys an, an image, and you guys are going to tell me what brand or company it's related with. And you know, group participation is, is you know, encouraged at this point. So first, we're going to start off with an easy one. Nike. Nike. Uh, Joey. <laughs> Nike. Great. Just looks fast. And the next. Boston Purina. Nice. You guys have dogs. You guys are, recognize this sign. That's great. And so the next one. Half of you have this with you in your hands right now. <laughs> And then we have Chevrolet. Chevrolet, like a rock. All these phrases come to mind. And then lastly, we have Yes! <laughs> yes! The last service, no one got it. So this is the white tree of Gondor, uh, the image of the last great kingdom of Middle Earth and the third age of men. <laughs> so uh, if those of you that recognize it, we can talk afterwards. We'll have a lot of fun. And if you're like me, I'm always wondering, what is this branding meeting like? When they come up with the catchphrase or logo, when does the light bulb strike? It's such a big decision, right? This is the one image to represent the entirety of your organization and what it stands for. How do you decide? This is a similar set of questions that the early church wrestled through as they sought to decide what symbol would stand above all the rest and depict the Christian faith. Some thought it should be a dove to symbolize the peace of Jesus. Others, a loaf of bread, recognizing his miracles and the way he provides. And still others proposed a fish to show that Jesus is a fisher of men. But these wouldn't stand the test of time because they paled in comparison to the foundational image of the cross. Of all symbols, there is nothing more foundational to the Christian faith than the cross of Christ which, if you consider it, is shockingly morbid. It's like wearing an electric chair around your neck or adorning your living room mantle with a noose. So why? Why an emblem of suffering and shame be the central identifying image for the followers of Jesus? Don't we worship a powerful and glorious king? Where's the throne, the crown, the scepter in this castle? Why a bloody, gruesome an offensive cross. In essence, how can a cross be triumph 
when he clearly looks defeated. If you've been with us as we've walked through Matthew, we've discussed how Jesus is being presented as a royal king. The genealogy of chapter 1, you know, the part we all skip, uh, declares that Jesus is from the line of David. Wise men bring him gifts, and Jesus goes around proclaiming a kingdom. And if that's not enough, we see that this week before Jesus' crucifixion, he comes riding a donkey as people lay their cloaks and palm branches before him. It's as though King Arthur has returned to Camelot. It's traditionally known as Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter today. But our text today is not the celebratory entrance of a king, but rather his bloody exit. So we come to this sobering text. We're asking, how can Jesus be our king from a position of suffering and shame hanging on a cross? And this is really part one of a story that, we, that will be resolved next week. And it's the climax of the narrative that Matthew has been showing us. Because it's not an accident at the end of a prosperous career, but the very thing that Matthew has been leading us towards. And not only that, it's the pinnacle of the whole Bible. The central event in human history from which everything has been working towards and flows out from. The story of how God provided a way for his broken creation to be restored and redeemed. There's so much to this rich narrative but I want us to focus on three things that Matthew uses to guide us through. That is the cross, the cry, and the curtain. And for us, these act as a sort of roadmap through the story and help us to clearly see what's going on. The cross, the cry, and the curtain. And looking at the cross, few would debate that Christ was crucified. No, our real questions seem to be revolved more around like how or why was it necessary What does it matter? These questions line up a little bit as we continue and walk through the cross, the cry, and the curtain because it matters that we know how Jesus suffered, the pain endured. We can often gloss over these atrocities, both physical and psychological, and miss what it really cost for Jesus to hang on that cursed tree. I believe it's appropriate for us to address this Uh, but I do know that it's uncomfortable. Uh, So if you do have kids, uh, please keep that in mind because it's important for us to understand the severity and the morbidity of the cross that we might grasp the depth of what Christ accomplished. Because crucifixion was a form of torture invented by the Persians and later perfected by the Romans. And during Roman rule, Crucifixion was a form of execution intended for the worst criminals, the lowest people. It's dehumanizing, barbaric, and it's painful. In fact, the Roman philosopher Cicero said that Roman citizens should not even speak of crucifixion because it's an abomination for the ears of decent people. And Josephus, a historian from Jesus' very century, referred to crucifixion crucifixion as the most wretched of deaths. But before we make it to the cross, we find Jesus already beaten and whipped. So that as we pick up this story in our text today, Matthew 27, 32, we see an already weakened Jesus who isn't even able to carry the cross. As Matthew writes, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. 
You see, it was customary for the soldiers to make the criminal carry this horizontal beam of the cross all the way to the cross. And if the criminal couldn't do it, the soldiers can use their Roman right to compel another to carry that burden. And this scene is much different than maybe many of the historical paintings that we might be used to. Because the Middle East is the same now as it was then. And in a city like Jerusalem, the streets were too small for the people that were standing in them. People were all around. It's tough to make your way through. And like a parade, more people flocked to watch this criminal procession. And even then, once you make it to Golgotha, the vertical beam of the cross is usually only five to six feet tall. Thus, the crowd of people could come eye to eye with the crucified the one considered cursed by God and man, in order to directly mock, abuse, and spit on them. Just to ensure that before death, the condemned would know that they are cursed. Matthew attests to this in verses 39 through 40. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. To add to this shame, people were often crucified completely naked, fully exposed for all to see, not an ounce, a shred of dignity for those who were executed. In addition to the wrists being nailed through, the feet would also be nailed to the cross. And this was not only to ensure that the body would not fall off the cross, but it actually prolonged their death as the Romans, I said, perfected it. In a 1986 article by the Journal of the American Medical Association, someone took up the the call to explain this medical process. And they said adequate exhalation required lifting the body by pushing up on the feet and by flexing the elbows. However, this maneuver would place the entire weight of the body on the tarsals and would produce searing pain. Furthermore, flexing the elbows would cause rotation of the wrists around the iron nails and cause fiery pain through the damaged median nerves. As a result, each respiratory effort would become agonizing and tiring and lead eventually to asphyxia. This is what Jesus experienced every time he went to take a breath. When his longing for oxygen became so unbearable, he would have to again endure the pain of applying all his weight upon the nails that were pierced through his body and the coarse cross on his lacerated back. This is how Jesus suffered on the cross, the physical, emotional pain. And I don't tell you all this to disgust you or to scare you away. I simply share it because it's real lest we think that Christianity is some fanciful religion all about having wonderful spiritual experiences without understanding the realities of life. Because the heart of Christianity is when the rawness of an agonizing world meets the one who embodies God's love, and it leads to a cross. And also, I believe that the physical torments and the pains seen at the cross of Jesus as terrible as they were, point to an even greater pain seen in the cry of Jesus. But first, let's take a breath, maybe. Are you guys doing okay? 
Hopefully not, actually. Um, I see, seriously, though, I mean, may we always be softened to the sufferings of our Lord. Um, you know, just personally, this has been a difficult text to dwell on um, and to prepare for you guys. So as we turn to look at Jesus' last words, we first notice that compared to the other Gospels, Matthew, along with Mark, give us a different account. And this isn't a contradiction, but each writer, by God's authority, is wanting to make a certain point about the significance of Jesus' crucifixion. Last words matter. And we see that Matthew took great care to preserve Jesus' last words. So much so that it was important to preserve the Aramaic and then explain it. And here's what we read in verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And who among us hasn't cried something similar? Why God? Of course, for Jesus, this seems out of place, contrary to his character. You might even think, oh no, he's finally given in. He's finally given up. Up until this point, he's been the perfect picture of a Stoic, right? As Tom talked last week, even Pilate himself was impressed with Jesus' Stoicism. But the onlookers, they definitely thought Jesus had cracked. Because the following verses, they think he's crying out for help and that it might come. So what's this all about? What could be more painful than everything he has endured? Because it is intense pain. In fact, the word translated cry out is only used in this verse and is extremely visceral, emotional, and agonizing. Some would say that shriek is a better way to describe Jesus' final words. This is the peak of Jesus' suffering as he is quoting directly from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. As a whole, it's a psalm of execution, a psalm of abandonment, a psalm that foretells this very moment on the cross. And it's also a psalm that expresses the deepest why God moments in life. Commentators call it a psalm of tension between despair and trust, doubt and faith, essentially the, diff- the tension between theology and experience. No doubt we've had, this, we've had this struggle, we've had this conversation. God, I trust you, I know you're good, but everything right now is terrible. For me, it reminds me of that footprints poem that hung in my grandparents' bathroom. Maybe you guys have heard it, maybe it's even in your house. It's essentially a person walking along the beach with Jesus, where there are two sets of footprints. But in the trouble of life, he notices only one set. Of course, getting upset with Jesus, the person says, where were you? To which Jesus calmly says something like, during those moments, I was carrying you. It's extremely comforting. It's helpful for us, but to describe this moment is terribly unhelpful. Because Jesus was actually abandoned by God on the cross. This cry is of abandonment. It's the only thing that could make Jesus shriek. And before we think that this cry is mere rhetoric, simply to describe how much pain Jesus was going through, let's look at the way that Matthew has been all along painting this picture of abandonment. First, he's betrayed by Judas. Then the disciples all scatter. 
The government fails him. None of his followers are with him in his final hours. The soldiers, religious leaders, and public mock and revile him. And the way Matthew tells it, even the criminals on the cross who suffer the same crucifixion condemn him. Matthew is making a point. So that when we get to the cry of Jesus, we see there is no one left on Jesus' side. He is utterly alone. Even the sun in the sky stops shining. We read in the verse right before the cry, Matthew 27, 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Up until the cry, from about noon to 3 p.m. it was dark, terrifying, utterly lonely. And what is it about darkness that just makes your hair stand on end? That's just terrifying. As some of you know, I I grew up in the country. Um, One of the ways that we would occupy ourselves, spend our time, is is hunting raccoons. It's a real thing. (laughs) But this sort of hunting happened in the middle of the night. And on those pitch black nights, there is little scarier than being 12 years old in the middle of the woods in the dead of night. Forget conserving your flashlight battery. I want to know something else is out there. Of course, then that's another fear. (laughs) We no doubt fear the darkness, but also the isolation that darkness creates because nobody wants to be alone. And even more, nobody wants to be abandoned. The Atlantic wrote a piece a while back called 12 Ways to Mess Up Your Kids as if we need someone telling us how. (laughs) But you see, the number one way, and maybe you can resonate with this, but the number one way was to threaten to leave them behind. We know that abandonment is terrible. Abandonment is the worst sort of pain. Some of us know this from personal experience, others through the fear of it in our closest relationships. In fact, For C.S. Lewis, this separation from all others is the very picture of hell. And no one has been abandoned like Jesus. Forsaken by both God and man, even the sun in the sky. J.I. Packer describes Jesus' experience well. On the cross, Jesus lost all the good that he had before. All sense of his Father's presence and love. All sense of physical, mental, and spiritual well-being all enjoyment of God and of created things, all ease and solace of friendship were taken from him. And in their place was nothing but loneliness, pain, a killing sense of human malice and callousness, and a horror of great spiritual darkness. You see, this is embedded in the cry of Jesus. And we want to know why such a man had to suffer. How could God do this? What's gained? The answer is us. And we might be thinking, are we worth it? But he wouldn't have endured it if we weren't. Because Jesus was abandoned so that we might not be. Some of us have suffered intense abandonment. Rejection by those closest to us. Rejection by those we love. It makes us feel inadequate, as though we weren't good enough. And it can harden our hearts to ever grow close again. But Jesus was abandoned that we might not be. So that no matter who may leave us, we can be confident that God never will. 
He's there for us. There's nothing we can do to earn it, and nothing we've done can keep us from this love of God. It's because on the cross, Jesus did not simply suffer and die in our place as an act of arbitrary love. He suffered and died in our place as an act of substitutionary love. You see, every impulse that we have to look away from the abhorrent cross and the shriek of his cry reveals how God ought to look away from us because of our sin. And yet at the cross, we see the immeasurable love of our Savior to put himself in our place. As the hymn we just sang declares, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. On the cross, Jesus experienced the abandonment of God as an act of God's holy and righteous judgment against our sin. Because on the cross, Jesus, the righteous one, actually became our sin. Paul declares us in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus declared my life for yours, and becoming our sin by trading places with us on the cross, Jesus is now able to become the object of God's holy and righteous opposition towards sin so that we don't have to be. The cross is an act of love because it's an act of substitution. The late John Stott describes it this way, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we who believe might never, might never be. The cross and the cry reveal the immense weight and cost of our sin and the power of the cross. Again, hymns say it so well. This, the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross. This, the power of the cross, Son of God, slain for us, what a love, what a cost, we stand forgiven at the cross. And so knowing what we are saved from, we turn now to what we are saved for. And with this, we turn to the curtain, where everything before the cry is turned on its head. Because at the very moment that Jesus breathes his last, the curtain of the temple is torn in two and the earth shakes. And we realize that the one who is too weak to raise the cross is actually, actually has the power to shake the world. Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The temple 
as we might know, was a way for God to be among his people and yet still preserve his perfect holiness. Because of this, the temple had multiple areas. The outer courts allowed most people, even Gentiles like us. But as you go further in, there are additional keep-out signs that restrict who can go further. And at the center is the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place on earth. Because this is where heaven, the place of God, meets earth. And it's reserved only for the high priest once a year to make a blood sacrifice covering the sins of God's people for that year. And separating this holy of holies from the outside world was a curtain roughly 60 feet high and so thick it was nearly soundproof. Essentially, what this temple and the curtain are saying is this, keep out, access denied. And in the same way, that the angels blocked Adam and Eve for coming back into the garden after their sin, the curtain separates God from sin. It doesn't matter how clean or righteous you may think you are, it's not good enough. It's never good enough. But Jesus tears down this dividing curtain between us and God, being the once and for all substitution and sacrifice for our sin. Jesus' sacrifice not only saves us, from the utter abandonment and separation from God, but saves us for an everlasting relationship with God and one another. Because Jesus was torn apart that we might be brought together with God. And did you notice how the curtain was torn? From top to bottom, not bottom to top. The way to God can only be made by God, by coming in the flesh, stooping to our level, Try as we might, there is nothing we can do to tear the curtain from the bottom to God. It takes a very act of God. And this is how our king reigns. This is how our king triumphs to save his people. Because Jesus was forsaken that we might never be. He was torn apart that we might be brought together with God. But the victory of the cross isn't proved until the resurrection. So our journey this morning ends in the same location as our text, unfinished, without a real conclusion and in quiet reflection. Oftentimes, this is how life feels, right? Simply the waiting. And if you've ever lost someone, you know how the women at the tomb feel at the end of this passage. After family and friends have come by, after the body has been laid in the grave, you sit on the couch, taking a deep sigh, thinking, what now? And this we read in Matthew 27, 57 through 61. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. And that's where we end our morning. No real conclusion, just in the deep breath of quiet reflection, sitting opposite the tomb. Reflecting on the depth of our sin, the cost Jesus paid, 
and wondering how this image of death, the cross, might become an image of life eternal.